Hey, we're in Matthew 26. If you have your Bibles, that's where our Bible study uh, time is going to be today. We're going to spend the next six to eight weeks in Matthew 26, 27, and 28. Before we start, Sherry, let me say a big thank you to you and your team. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely put your hands together. So she talked about all of Serve Week and said it wouldn't have happened without your generosity, and, and that's true. But I know this, um, a thousand people can't just show up without having to put thought into serving and serve and serve well and serve meaningful. Uh, meaningfully, if you and your team for months had not been arranging projects, telling us where to be, when to be, working on the front end, doing the work on the back end, um, like your team made it very, very easy for us to serve Jesus like sheep last week. So thank you for the work that you put in. I know you're already thinking about um, serve week next week. I can't believe you called me out for the blood thing. We'll talk about that um, later. <laughs> For those of you who sent me pictures of your loved ones totally passed out after giving blood this week, thank you. It makes my heart feel better. Um, I promise you, if I don't go to Guatemala, I'll give blood next year, and you can put a picture of me passed out on the floor um, for, our, uh, for our church to see. But um, Sherry, thank you. An exciting day for us at the end of this service. Uh, we're going to be commissioning Pastor Christian Gracia, his wife Hannah, their kids Karis and Zion and Judah as they leave for Vegas. Hannah will be on a plane Tonight, Christian will drive out tomorrow. They'll be planning King City Church um, in Las Vegas sometime in 2024. Uh, and it's a really cool day for me as a pastor. One, to be a part of a church that serves our community. Sherry, I've always wanted to be a part of a church that serves a community like our church served our community last week. It makes me feel good, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, to know I'm a, I'm, I'm a part of a group of people who love and see and serve our community. I've also wanted to be a part of churches that didn't exist for themselves, but existed for the greater mission of Jesus. So for us today, to get to celebrate serving our community and to get to celebrate planting another church that I know is going to plant another church, just makes me feel like we're doing some kingdom work. So it's an exciting day today just to be in church and be a part of Journey's ministry, but we've got some really good ministry in Matthew chapter 20. We're starting a new series today that will run us through Anniversary Sunday, September 17th, called It Is Finished. And we are racing with Jesus on Passion Week to the final five days of his life that will take us through Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We'll start today on Wednesday of Passion Week, and we'll review Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then eventually we'll walk all the way through the end of Matthew 28, and we'll see God's commission for our life. So I'm excited to jump into Matthew 26 because really it is Jesus snapping us back into present time with his disciples to say, all right, we've spent 94 verses talking about what's going to happen at the end, and I'm glad you know it, and I'm glad you're ready, but let's get our eyes off of the distant future, and let's talk about today and tomorrow. So Matthew 26 is going to be Jesus saying, hey, we've talked about all the stuff at the end, now let's talk about the next two days, and let's make sure we don't spend our life so focused on the future that we miss today and tomorrow and what God might have for us today and tomorrow. If there's a theme of today's message, as I was just studying and praying last night one final time in Matthew 26, really the theme of today's message would be this. It would be that you can trust God to prioritize your life and your schedule around the things that are most important to him and be faithful and know that he'll take care of you. I think when we get to the end of the message, that hopefully is what you will have learned that you can, regardless of whether or not you do it now, that you can leave and you can prioritize your life around the things that are most important to Jesus 
And you can do them first, and you can do them intentionally. And if you're faithful in doing those, God will just keep showing up over and over in your story again. And all of his plans and all of his promises for you will happen if you are just faithful one day at a time. That's what Matthew 26 is going to teach us as we jump in. And as we jump in, I'm going to give you the points, and we're going to read some scripture, and we'll talk through it. We're going to jump in today by going what I call, number one, back to reality But we're also going to look at a little bit of what I would call like improbable sovereignty. Like we're going to see God do something in the past through his plan and promises that almost seems incomprehensible how it comes together perfectly in the life of Jesus for our spiritual lives. But we're going to see Jesus kind of snap us back to reality and then we're going to learn a little bit about improbable sovereignty. We're going to move from what's coming long term to what's coming now. And I think that's important because what I have experienced as I've talked to people spiritually is most people miss what Jesus is doing today because they're concerned with what Jesus will do tomorrow or next week. I don't meet with people who often tell me, I'm not sure that I'm going to make it through this day. But I often meet with people who are concerned about this experience in the next three months, three years, five years, ten years. Jesus taught his followers to pray, give me this day my daily bread. Most Christians don't pray that or even think that way. I have found most Christians are more focused on a prayer that would sound like this. Give me this day my 401k. Um, Because they are constantly worried about how today is going to impact tomorrow. And they are more concerned with worrying about how today will impact tomorrow than how Jesus will impact today. And almost every day we get to the end of the day and we've been so concerned about what's coming next that we've missed what's coming now. So Jesus is going to kind of snap us back to reality and say, man, be careful that as a Christian, you don't spend all your time thinking about the future so much so that you're not faithful every day, day by day with the daily bread I want you to have. We're also going to see some improbable sovereignty. We're going to see how God put together a plan and a purpose to bring humanity into relationship with himself And how that's going to work out at the end of Jesus' life in a way that is almost unbelievable. But it's one of those things that shows us that only God can do what God said he's going to do. But only God will do what he said he's going to do. And you can trust his plan and purposes if you will be faithful. So as we jump into Matthew 26, here's what we're going to learn. After the longest recorded answer of Jesus in the Bible, 94 verses discussing his second coming, he's going to redirect the focus of his disciple to the purpose of his first coming. Let's quit talking about the second coming. Let's talk about the first coming. This will be the fourth time in Matthew, Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, 20, 18, and 19, that he says, my purpose is to go to the cross. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to resurrect. So Jesus says, let's quit talking about my second coming. Let's make sure you clearly understand my first coming. As we jump into Matthew 26, 1 and 2, here's what it's going to say. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, you might circle those three words, All these things was everything in Matthew 24 and 25, an answer to the question, tell us about the end times. So we spent eight weeks talking through those 94 verses. When Jesus finished talking about the end times, when he started talking about faraway future, stopped it, he said to his disciples, let's get back to reality. As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. Jesus said, now that you know about the last days, we need to focus on the next two days. That's going to be the purpose of this series, focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means to your every day, not just your last day, not just your first day in eternity. As we look at verse 2, we're going to see Jesus do something 
It's going to teach us something about him and us. We're going to see Jesus sovereignly set the time and place for his crucifixion. It's coming in two days. It's going to be at the Passover. We're also going to see the God of the universe sovereignly ordain a plan and the people that will put the crucifixion in place. But it's a plan and a people that were designed 1,500 years earlier. We're going to see in verse 2, Jesus say, here is God's plan for me and for when it's going to happen. And we're going to realize that that plan was set in place 1,500 years before Jesus said it. But as we kind of keep moving through this text, we're going to see some conflicting plans because Jesus says, here's God's plan for, for me, but here's what other people have planned at the exact same time. Look at verses 2 through 5 because we're going to be introduced to what it looks like to have a clear plan from God and then try to have some kind of plan on your own. He said in verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled. So I want you to see two assemblies. One, Jesus talking to his disciples. Now we go to a different home and we have the high priest talking to his disciples. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there might be a riot among the people. As I read Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, I see conflicting plans. I see what God clearly says his plan is, and then I see people trying to do their own thing. Now, I don't just see that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. I also see that as I look at the congregation. And I also see that as I look at my life. Because there are some things that God has clearly told us are his plan for followers of Jesus. And then there's the way we do Christianity our way. So this message is not just about them then. This message is for us now. But the conflicting plans show us some things that I think can maybe turn on some light bulbs for us spiritually. The first conflicting plan is this. Jesus' plan is that he's going to die at Passover. The high priest's plan, I don't know if you heard him, was that Jesus would die, but not during the Passover. Literally, their plans are in conflict. They're saying the exact opposite thing. Jesus huddled up his disciples, said, huddle up, here's what's happening. Passover's coming, they're going to crucify me on Passover. At the exact same time, high priest is huddling his disciples, and he's like, huddle up, we got to kill this guy, but not on Passover. Like, like, right, literally in one conversation, we hear Jesus saying, here is the plan of God, and we hear the high priest saying, I've got a different way to approach this. Now, here's what's interesting. People have been trying to kill Jesus for a long time. Three very specific um, Three very specific attempts on his life in three specific, very important cities. First one, Bethlehem. Jesus was born, and a wicked king named Herod said, we got to kill him, so he killed all the boys in Bethlehem, but he missed Jesus. Herod's plan was he's got to die now. God's plan was no, not now, later. Uh, Later, he'd be in his hometown of Nazareth, and when he would preach in Nazareth and declare himself to be the Messiah, it said the people in his hometown tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him, but God's plan, their plan was now, God's plan was no, not now, later. Uh, Later in Jerusalem, in John chapter 5, Jesus would heal a man who'd been lame his entire life at a pool called Bethesda. And when that man would carry his bed into the temple complex and say, Jesus did it, um, it says that the leaders of Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus, but it wasn't his time yet. God's like, no, not, not, not yet, not now. But now Jesus says now, here and now. And the high priest says, no, 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 there and later. And we see a conflict of plans So we're not only going to see who's sovereign, but we're going to see who is in control. Some of you have very clearly had God 
call you to something in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting, in your finances. And God has said, here and now, it's time. And like Caiaphas, you're thinking, no, um, later. And what we're going to see is when God gives a clear plan, our no later never really comes to fruition. We're going to see that our lives are in God's timing. Did you see the second conflicting plan, plan number two, the way Jesus would die? Jesus' plan is that he would be publicly crucified in a way that would draw the world to his salvation and his spiritual authority. In John 12, 32, he told his disciples, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself for salvation. They will raise me up from the earth. When I am publicly crucified, the world will understand that I am the Savior. That was not the high priest's plan. The high priest's plan was to have a secret arrest and a secret death so they could retain their spiritual authority and autonomy. As a matter of fact, the high priest said very specifically, we can't kill him at the festival because it needs to be kind of a secret thing. It needs to be on the DL. Jesus' plan for death is that it would be public and it would draw people to himself. The high priest's plan for his death is that it would be private and it would just kind of quietly get rid of him. Because he said the people will riot if they know we're trying to kill him. Now, I find this really interesting. The Jewish historian Josephus said that one year they tracked the number of Passover lambs killed at Passover in Jerusalem, and there were 256,200 Passover, 256, Passover lambs that were slaughtered at the time of Passover. We know that a family or friend group of 10 would share those, so they believe up to 2.5 million people would have descended on Jerusalem and been celebrating Passover, most of them from outside of Jerusalem, most of them from regions of Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, most of them from the regions of Galilee, most of them from the regions of the Decapolis, these Jews who would descend on Jerusalem. By the way, those are Jesus' places. Tyre and Sidon, that's a Jesus' place. Galilee, that's a Jesus' place. The Decapolis, that's a Jesus' place. So they're thinking, this guy's got a lot of followers in Jerusalem, we are going to have to kill him, but not here, not now, not around these people. There's too many of them. They'll go crazy. I had a guide in Israel who said something I've never heard said in my eight trips to Israel with eight different guides telling me eight different versions of their stories of the life of Jesus. We had a guide this time who said the reason they crucified Jesus early. So he gave a little Passover history, which I knew. He gave a little Seder history, which I knew, that Jews will drink four cups of wine during the Seder, symbolizing different things. And he said, a lot of Jews will overdrink on the Passover Seder. And he said, because of that, a lot of them sleep in in the morning. And he said, the reason they chose to kill Jesus so early in the morning is so that all of his followers wouldn't be awake yet. Now, I'd never heard that. I do know from the Feast of Pentecost that they thought the disciples had been up drinking all night long, and at 9 a.m. they thought they were drunk because they should have been in bed. So there may be a little historical credibility to what he was saying. But either way, Caiaphas was saying, we got to figure out how to do this without all his people knowing because um, they'll riot if they're aware. Now, some of you right now are in conflict number two. And honestly, you're in a bad place in conflict number two. Because you have already decided that, you're, that you would prefer to make a decision against what God has told you to do. You're not trying to figure out whether or not it's right or wrong. You're trying to figure out whether or not you can do it without other people knowing. You see the conflict here? Caiaphas is like, we're going to do something wrong. How do we do it in a way that nobody finds out about it? There's some of you who are followers of Jesus that Jesus has clearly said, I want you to do A. And you've already decided you're going to do B. You're trying to figure out how to do it in a way that nobody will know. 
Conflict number two is very powerful. It's very real. It was real in the life of Jesus and Caiaphas. It's very real in the life of followers of Jesus today. And then the third conflicting plan might be my favorite, and it shows the overwhelming sovereignty, the improbable sovereignty of God. The high priest's plan for Jesus' death was to hand Jesus over to Rome so they could do the dirty work, no blood, on our hands. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 19, when they would go to uh, the Roman governor Pilate and say, we need you to kill him, he would say, like, he's not done anything wrong. And they would say, no, we have a law. And according to our law, he has to die. But we want you to kill him. We don't want to kill him ourselves. No blood on our hands. Well, improbably, God's plan 1,500 years earlier was that only the high priest was responsible to kill the Lamb of God each year on the Day of Atonement. That was the only way the sins of the people could be forgiven. The blood could only be on his hands, but would also be for his forgiveness. So 1,500 years ago, as Moses and the people of Israel leave Egypt, and God teaches them how to live with him in community, live with them at the center of his life, he says, you're going to have to figure out a way to have your sins forgiven and covered every year. So here's going to be the plan. There's going to be one person among you that we call the high priest. You're going to have a lot of priests, but he's going to be the highest priest. One day a year, he is going to be responsible for killing the Lamb of God. He's going to take that blood. The blood it's only going to be on him. He's going to take it behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. He's going to put it from his hands onto the altar. And when the high priest kills the Lamb of God and brings it before God, the people of God will be able to be forgiven and they'll be able to live in relationship with God. See, it was God's plan 1,500 years earlier that the Jewish high priest would be responsible for killing Jesus because only the Jewish high priest was responsible to kill the lamb that represented forgiveness for the people of God. Jesus said, in two days, I'm going to die at the Passover. They're going to crucify me. It's going to be public so God can use it. God said 1,500 years earlier, the Lamb of God will make atonement for my people at the hands of my high priest. And I don't know if you know it, but this is kind of how John shapes his book. John 1:29, he talks about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, introducing him as he baptized. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? The high priest would kill it one day a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And with the blood on his hands, he would take that blood behind the curtain and he would present it to God. That's how the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. Caiaphas could not have known what God had ordained in John chapter 11 after Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead and the whole city was going after him and the Jewish leaders met and thought, what are we going to do now? Caiaphas, one of the men named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. God's plan is that the high priest would kill the Lamb of God and that the blood on his hands would be used to cleanse the sin of the world who would come to him. Improbably, 1,500 years ago, God had set something in motion. And at the Passover festival, the Passover festival should have been the Jews' reminder that Rome is not in charge. Because the Passover festival was inaugurated to tell the Jews the Egyptians are not in charge. God is in charge. You are not enslaved by the Egyptians. You've been freed by the God of Israel. And every year you are supposed to remember Egypt's not in charge. Assyria's not in charge. Babylon's not in charge. Rome's not in charge. The Passover was the Jew statement to the world that ultimately God is responsible for people who are saved. God is responsible for people who are judged. God takes care of us. And on this Passover, 
God was intending like he always had to take care of his people because Rome was not in charge. The high priest was not in charge. God was in charge. And I don't know what you're going through today. All I know is that today the Bible teaches you is that God is in charge. He's good. And it might not be okay, but it will be all right because you won't be alone as you go through it. God is improbably sovereign. And probably the only thing Caiaphas got right in his history of wrong is that he said, one lamb needs to die for an entire people. Caiaphas was a disputed high priest because he wasn't a Levite. Uh, High priests were supposed to be appointed by God. At this time, high priests were appointed by Rome. It was a political agreement. In the hundred years before Caiaphas, there had been 28 different high priests. They'd reigned on average about three and a half years. Caiaphas would reign 22 years from 15 AD to 37 AD. So how could he be a high priest if he wasn't a Levite? Rome appointed him, and then he married the daughter of the high priest, a man named Annas. So he kind of married into the Levitical priesthood. And he basically existed to serve Rome, not his people. But he did not even know that he had been created to serve God by making sure that the Lamb of God died at the hands of the high priest so the blood of the Lamb could connect a people who was separated from God into relationship with God. We learn that Jesus says, hey, don't don't be so focused on the last days that you miss the next two days. And remember as you go through the next two days, God is in charge and it is okay. Number two, Matthew's going to do something interesting. He then is going to give us a flashback of what I call the heart of worship. So he's been talking about the end times. And then he says, hey, let's get focused on the next two days. But then he's going to do something, and you'll understand why I call it a flashback in a minute. Because he's going to insert a story outside of the scope of the week. We're on Wednesday of Passover week. Matthew's going to insert a story that did not happen on Wednesday of Passover week. Here's what it says on verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. We're going to pause right there, and we're going to thank God for a couple things in this moment. And then we're going to read kind of the rest of the story. Uh, As someone who I've told you time and again is what I would call a historical skeptic, Um, meaning I need history to keep proving to me things of the Bible. I need archaeology to keep proving to me things of the Bible. Um, I, I follow Jesus by faith, not just fact, but it helps me when I have fact. My, my mind is shaped in such a way that I, would, that I would like to have some knowledge close my faith gap. One of my favorite things about the New Testament scriptures is how often the authors of New Testament books mention other authors of New Testament books, which gives us tremendous historical credibility that they were written at the same time. For instance, uh, the Apostle Peter talks about the Apostle Paul and his letters. Like the Apostle Peter, when he's writing, says, you should read Paul's stuff. Makes me think that Paul was alive and writing stuff at the time of Peter. Uh, The Apostle Paul mentions Peter. Like we spent time together. We ministered together. We were in cities together. We got in some spiritual conflict together. The Apostle Paul gives me confidence that maybe what the Bible says Peter did, Peter really did. Uh, Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, starts off the book of Luke by saying lots of people are writing books about Jesus. I read them, which makes me think he probably read Matthew and Mark. And one of my favorite kind of pieces in New Testament history is that the book of John was written as the last gospel to kind of give the Paul Harvey rest of the story of Jesus' life. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 90% of the content of those books is the exact same. They're almost the same book. 
Only 10% of what's written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is found in John. It's as if John wrote, read everything that had been written about Jesus and said, i got to fill in some gaps. And this is one of the areas that John fills in gaps, and I'm glad that he does, because it changes how the story challenges me spiritually. For instance, if I just said this, verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, period, you would think, that's not really a challenging verse spiritually. I mean, maybe I could take from that that I need to go eat dinner at the house of a leper. Maybe I could take from that that I need to open my home. Like, there doesn't appear to be a tremendous amount of application there. But in John chapter 12, John says, here's what Matthew didn't tell you about that dinner. And he says this, six days before the Passover. So we know it's Saturday before Palm Sunday, not Wednesday after Palm Sunday. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining with him at the table. When I look at that text... My heart is immediately challenged. You say, why? One, because Jesus is six days before crucifixion, and we read about his heart to spend time with his friends, these broken people whose lives have been deeply impacted by Jesus, while on the way to the cross. That challenges how I live my life every day. Like Jesus is getting ready to head into the most important, busiest, we could say worst week of his life. And you say, how do you kick off the busiest, most important, worst week of your life? By hanging out with my Christian friends. Is that how you kick off the busiest, most important, hardest weeks of your year? You make sure and start with a party with your Christian friends so you can hang out together? I read about the heart of Jesus and I think his heart looks different than my heart. Think about who's around this table. Jesus is there. Lazarus is there who was dead, who's now alive again. They're throwing Jesus a party to say, thanks for raising our dead brother. I'm not sure if that's what the cake said, but it would have been a cool cake. Like, <laughs> thanks, like, thanks for raising our dead brother. We're like, for he's a jolly good fellow, and he can raise the dead. Like, like that, that's the party. The party is, he raised a dead guy. We're really grateful. It's like the opposite of a funeral wake. It was like the opposite of a funeral wake. Um, so Lazarus is there. Simon the leper is whose house that it's in. So we know this man has been cleansed because you were not allowed to walk inside a leper's house. It would give everyone leprosy. So this man probably at some point in his life has been cleansed, radically cleansed by Jesus. And we know that Mary and her sister Martha, like we know these people. We can see them in our head. We know a little bit about their spiritual shape. And Jesus is there. He'd restored their lives. He'd resurrected their souls. He had deeply impacted their families. He had come to their place spiritually because they could not go to his place spiritually. And he does the same thing for all of us. Restoration, resurrection, deep impact. He comes to us, but often we don't have the same time to offer him as his friends did 2,000 years ago. The reality is most of us in this room who are followers of Jesus would say he has restored brokenness. He's resurrected our souls. He's deeply impacted our families. But we really don't have time this week to spend um, like a big block of time with him because we're busy. I read the heart of Jesus and I'm challenged in my heart of worship. When I look at my time with Jesus during very busy and important seasons and I see how he lives his life, I'm challenged. When I look at my time with spiritual community during very busy and important seasons, I'm challenged by the heart of Jesus 
and how he lives his life. And I got to be honest with you, as I walked into last week, which was a busy week, a busy, important week for Danielle and I. We'd been in Israel for two weeks with our college kids leading a tour over there. I taught 39 times in eight days to our kids at all these various biblical sites. Uh, I was exhausted. I was jet lagged. I came home, like many of you, to hundreds of emails in my email box. My WhatsApp was full. My group me was full. My text messages were full. Like, my goal was just to make it through the week without getting up every day at 3 a.m. and going to bed every day at 3 p.m. Like, when you're in that jet lag state of mind, like, you just want to exist through the week. Yet, the most important parts of my schedule were evenings with spiritual community that did not seem to be the most important thing that I needed to do for others, but they were the most important things that God needed to do for me. Because in the middle of that jet lag busy week, when I showed up at the Marion Hope House with our elders and some other men from our church to do our serve week project from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., half asleep, sweating profusely, running a chainsaw, not, trying not to cut myself or somebody else around me. When I look back on my week last week, that was the most meaningful part of my week. Thursday night when Danielle and I had the chance to spend our entire evening with Pastor Christian and Hannah Gracia, just talking about their next steps. When I look back at my week, it was time with people that were the most impactful parts of my week. On Friday, when Danielle and I got to go help one of our friends, Kevin and Christina Lent, who own a fence business elite, Fence and Deck celebrate their 20-year anniversary and the grand opening of new, their new facility in Raymore. Like, when I look back at this week, even a year from now, I promise you, I won't remember any meetings that I had. I won't remember the sermon that I preached. I probably won't remember very many things in my devotion. I'll remember serving with my friends. I'll remember having dinner with my friends. I'll remember celebrating my friends. And on most busy, important weeks of my life, I'm running for shelter, not community. And I see Jesus doing the opposite, and I think, I'm challenged, and I need to get better. Our last reflection question as we process through our reflection questions today, we'll ask you this question. On your busiest, most important weeks, do you really slow everything down to spend time with Jesus and spiritual community, or does that only come when you have lots of margin in your life? We can learn some things from Jesus, but we can learn more about just the heart of worship. Look at verses 6 through 13, 7 through 13. It says, a woman came to... Jesus, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? You might underline those three words. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume out on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So I had to ask this question this week. Why does Matthew put this story here out of order? Why does he want us to read this, focus on this, see this, but in the wrong order? And I think the answer is this. Jesus has started by saying, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified on Passover as the Lamb of God. And I think Matthew is saying, let's make sure we pause and really reflect on that fact before we run off to serve Jesus. Let's make sure when we think about what Jesus has done for us that we sit in that with him and we let it deeply impact our souls before we run off to do something else. 
See, when I look at not just the heart of worship, but when I look at the heart of serving Jesus and giving to the mission of Jesus, I think this is a really challenging text. In light of the cross, I want to look at three things to kind of frame this, and then we'll race to the finish line. I want to look at the woman and the perfume. I want to look at the attitude of the disciples. I want to look at the statement of Jesus. And I just want you to ask, what does it mean to you in your spiritual walk this week? Let's start with the woman and the perfume. We know the woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. John 12, 3 says that, and we know she was overwhelmed. Not only did she love Jesus deeply, but Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. She was overwhelmed at who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for her. So it says she brings this very expensive perfume. As we read in Mark and John, we're told how expensive. It was a pound of pure nard, which is what, it's not perfume. It's what they make perfume with. It was worth one year's wage to a day laborer. Plus, we read she broke the bottle, which probably would have been like a family heirloom too. And when she did this, followers of Jesus around her said, why would you waste money like that? Why would you do that? Like, we could have sold that and had like 52 serve weeks. Why would you do that? And they asked this question, why would you waste time and money on Jesus? Now, question sounds bad when you say it that way, but that was the question. It's interesting, Matthew says the disciples said it. John says Judas says it because he was the treasurer and he liked to steal money. Which means this, from time to time, you're going to do something or see something done in the mission of Jesus, and this thought is going to hit you. That seems like a waste. You need to understand that's the voice of Judas, not Jesus. Why would you waste that? Now, Mary has always been accused of wasting things for Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, remember Jesus is at her house, they're having a meal, her sister's serving, she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's like, will you please help her stop wasting her time, and will you tell her to come and, and serve me, not you? And Jesus is like, it's not a waste of time to serve me and sit at my feet. And what we're getting ready to hear here is it's not a waste of time to serve the mission of Jesus by giving. Let me say something to you really clearly in case... There's a spirit in your heart or head trying to convince you otherwise. It is never a waste of time or money to serve the mission of Jesus. It's never a waste of a minute. It's never a waste of a dollar to serve the mission of Jesus. The apostle Paul would tell the church at Philippi, some people are serving out of selfish ambition. God even uses that. Like their heart's wrong. But it's never a waste of time to serve or give towards the mission of Jesus. Mary had always been accused of wasting time. Now she's accused of wasting money. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Serving and giving towards me is never a waste of time. You say, what was wrong? The attitude of the disciples was wrong. Look at the attitude of Jesus' disciples. Let's see one thing and then learn one thing. One, it's possible to get our eyes so focused on the mission of Jesus in the world that we forget about the ministry of Jesus in our lives. I know this is possible because I've seen it happen in the life of others, and I've seen it happen in my own life. And here's, what's hap here's what happens. When it comes to giving and serving, our hearts always get tired before our hands. And at some point when we quit sitting at the feet of Jesus, at some point when we start, stop getting alone with Jesus, 
Some of us will stop sitting at the feet of Jesus long before we'll stop serving Jesus. And then as we serve Jesus, we'll begin to say, is this worth it or is it a waste? Our hands last longer than our hearts. Some of us will get to a point where we stop engaging and giving in the mission of Jesus. Because we stop getting alone with God, we, stop, we, we give for a while, but then eventually it becomes a finance thing, not a faith thing. And we think, should I keep giving to this or is this a waste? Remember Martha? Martha's heart had already stopped spending time with Jesus, but her hands were still serving him. And then she blew up. And she was like, I cannot do this this way. Make somebody help me. And Jesus said, Martha, if you try to serve me without first sitting with me, you're going to burn out. Martha, if you try to give without getting alone with me, you'll never have enough money. Martha, your heart is in the wrong place. And I can say this because I've seen it, and probably it's happening right now in every row in this auditorium. Somebody is continuing to serve Jesus. Somebody is continuing to give spiritually, but you are running on empty because you've quit sitting with Jesus. You're serving him, you never sit with him. You're giving, but you never get alone with him. And your heart is getting really, really frustrated at anything and everything around. Your attitude is broken because your hands are still going, but your heart has stopped working spiritually. You say, what is, what's the cure for that? You got to keep getting alone with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul said, living for Jesus is going to eat you from the inside out if you don't keep feeding your soul. Here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away. By the way, he's talking about living for Jesus. When you leave for Jesus, it's going to feel like outwardly you're giving your whole life away. But we don't lose heart because inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary trouble, serving's hard, but we do it. Giving's hard, but we do it. Because we realize they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is, on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Serving will rot you away. Giving will rot you away. Unless every day you sit with Jesus, you get alone with Jesus, and you let him slowly rebuild your heart. You say, what if I've not been doing that? I love what Paul says. Don't lose heart. Just start getting with Jesus this week. I texted some of the guys in my Bible reading group this week because those of you who are tracking with us were not only in a miserable spot in the year, the like hottest dog days of July, but this is one of the most difficult reading plans I've ever been on. It's like, let's read the seven most difficult prophets all at the same time, just kind of like interwoven together. It's like Amos and Isaiah, uh, Isaiah and Hosea, and you just start combining names and bad kings of Israel, and it's like every day I'm reading something doesn't even make sense to me if you don't have great biblical It's hard. So I texted some of my guys this week. How's everybody doing? Here's what you need to know. Almost all of them said, I'm behind. It's not, it's not been good. I'm behind. You know what my message back was? Don't lose heart. Just like start today sitting with Jesus and one day at a time, like just start moving on. I talked to one of my guys after the end of the 830 who is one who's on track. He's actually on track, I think a day ahead. And I said, hey, do you feel good? As I mentioned, all our guys... And he said, actually, no, because he said, I've not been reading my Bible to sit with Jesus. I've just been reading it to check the box. So I need to change my perspective a little bit. Because I've been reading, but I've not really considered it time with Jesus. That's good. That's good, That's good that the Holy Spirit would say that to your heart. So you've got to sit with Jesus. You've got to get alone with Jesus. At least that's the statement of Jesus to his disciples here. 
He says to his disciples who are criticizing someone who's serving and giving, he says, listen, keep my gospel at the center of your serving and your giving focus. I want you to hear the statement. I want you to see the principle. I need you to keep my gospel at the center of your serving and giving focus because I'm going to the cross and she's preparing me for that. And that is the most important thing to understand who I am and what I've done because when our serving and giving has a foundation of anything other than Jesus, it's only a matter of time or circumstance before we don't serve or give at all. True in seasons of my life may be true for you in this season of your life. You were Martha. Your hands got tired, but only because your heart quit getting with Jesus, so you stopped serving. Your finances felt like they were getting too tight in a way to keep giving, so you stopped giving. Your hands couldn't give anymore, but only because your heart started, stopped getting alone with Jesus. And somehow something other than Jesus and his cross motivated your serving and giving, and when that motivation or that circumstance changed, you were out. It reveals more about you than you'd like to know. But you also hear Jesus say, but like, step back in and follow me. I love what he said to Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 41 and 42, when her heart was already dead and her hands were going dead. She's like, tell Mary to help. He said in Luke 10, 41 and 42, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary's chosen what's better. It's not going to be taken away from her. Please hear me as we close this message today. Sitting with Jesus is far more important than serving Jesus in your spiritual walk. But when you sit with Jesus, you will always serve Jesus because you just can't help it. His heart motivates you to be like him. Please listen to what I'm saying. Getting alone with Jesus is far more important than ever giving a dollar to the mission of Jesus. But when you live a life of continually getting alone with Jesus, the overflow of your life wants to give to Jesus because you just, you want to say thank you and you, you want God to use what he's given you to impact others the way that Jesus has impacted you. So what has God said to you today? How, how, how can you apply it? Our reflection questions today are going to center on three things. Serving is important, but not as important as sitting with Jesus are you sitting with Jesus? Question two would be like, giving is important, but not nearly as important as getting alone with Jesus. Are you getting alone with Jesus? And then the third question is, for me, the big challenge of the day, when things are really, really, really busy and important, more time with Jesus in your spiritual community or no time for Jesus in your spiritual community? Jesus shows us a different way to do it, and I want to be like him. Amen? So I'm going to pray. Our three questions will come on the screen. We'll give you a chance to kind of reflect on those. At the end of these three questions, Pastor Christian Gracia, his wife Hannah, their kids are going to join me on the stage. Our elders and pastoral staff will join me on the stage. And together as a church, we'll commission them as they head off to Vegas this week. So don't leave after we're done. Then we've got a reception for them in the auditorium. We'd love you to stop by and say hi to them before you go. But let, before we do that, let's just focus on what God has said to our hearts. So God, thank you for the challenge of Jesus today. Challenging our heart of worship, challenging our heart of giving and serving, inviting us once again to your feet to be still, to sit with you, to get alone with you, to understand the cross of Jesus, to understand the sovereignty of God. 
to have a trust that allows us to live faithfully and to have a faithfulness that allows us to experience your plans and promises. Be with us as we contemplate that and what we need to do today. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.